0: Good evening, this is Pamela, and you are listening to Watchmen on the Pod. I'm going to continue in my book reading of Billy Graham and his friends, written by Dr. Catherine Burns. Communistic Objectives. Of course, world government advocates knew exactly what they were promoting. One such advocate, George W. Blount, Bragg's, quote, Dr. Luther Evans, president of World Federalist USA, reminds federists that they should not be discouraged. It cites the fact that during the past quarter century since 1945, world federalism has spawned a goodly number of world law organizations. He lists the following the Institute for International Order, the Stanley Foundation, the World Peace Through World Law of the American Bar Association, the Parliamentaries for Federation of Democratic Nations, Atlantic Union, the American Movement for World Government, World Association of World Federalists, International Peace Academy, World Constitutional Group, also there are related organizations the united nations association Uni- uh, the usa no I see the united nations association usa the commission to study the organization of peace council on foreign relations foreign policy association all these work toward the goal of world peace under world law unquote. Not only did Henry Luce belong to the Atlantic Union, but he was also a trustee of the Institute of Pacific Relations, IPR. A little background on the IPR is needed at this point. David Allen Riviera explains, quote, In 1925, Lionel Curtis established the Institute of Pacific Relations, IPR, in twelve countries in order to steer America towards communism. The Round Table Finger Organization was financed by the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Corpor- Corporation, the Carnegie Endowment for, Inter- in, for International Peace, and the Ford Foundation. The American branch received funding from Standard Oil, Vacuum Oil, Shell Oil, International General Electric, Bank of America, National City Bank, Chase National Bank, International Business Machines, International Telephone and Telegraph, Time Magazine, and JP Morgan. Quote, IPR was led by Professor Owen Lattimore head of John Hopkins University School of Diplomacy, who, during 1951-52, investigation of the IPR was identified as a Soviet operative. The Senate found the group to be a vehicle toward communist objectives. Men from the IPR, who were all communists or pro-communists, were placed in important teaching positions and dominated the Asian Affairs section of the State Department. After a four-year battle, their tax-exempt status was revoked from 1955 to 1960. Quote, their publications were used by the Armed Forces, colleges, and close to 13 Hundred public school systems. They published a magazine called Amerenacea, whose offices had been raided by the FBI, who found 1,700 secret documents from various government agencies, including the Army and Navy, that were either stolen or given to them by traitors within the State Department. A Senate Inter- Internal Subcommittee Concluded that the American policy decision, which helped establish communist control in China by threatening to cut off aid to Chiang Kai shek unless he went communist, was made by IPR officials acting on behalf of the Soviet Union. Besides Lattimore, they also named Laughlin Curry, or Laughlin Curry, an administrative assistant. The president, who was identified as a Soviet agent by J. Edgar Hoover, Alger Hiss, Joseph Barnes, Philip Jessup, and Harry Dexter White as communist sympathizers, while he was an assistant secretary of treasury, Harry Dexter White provided Russia with the means of printing currency. He became director of the International Monetary Fund in 1946 resigned in 1947, when Whitaker Chambers accused him of being pro-communist, which he denied. In November 1948, after White's death, <clears throat> excuse me, Whitaker produced five rolls of microfilm documents, which included eight pages of U.S. military secrets, which had been written by White. Unquote. Even Carol Quigley wrote, Quote, the influence of the communists in IPR is well established. Unquote. Remember that it was Lionel Curtis who established the IPR. Curtis published a book, World Order, in 1938. This nine hundred and eighty five page volume would be called the foundation of all thought on the design of a new world order. It examines human society and concludes that a working system must mean the organization of all human society into one commonwealth. The institution of specific, not specific, but pacific relations also published P. E. Corbett's. Post-war worlds in 1942, in which it was st- it was stated the following quote: "A world association binding together with coordinating regional groupings of states may evolve toward one universal federal government, as in the past loose confederations have grown into federal unions." Such Evolution will bring with it increasing security and peace and social progress. World government is the ultimate aim, but there is more chance of attaining it by gradual development. First, it must be recognized that the law of nations takes precedence over national law. There is much to be said for constituting a supreme world court. Nationalism threatens to be a continuing obstacle to general progress. It may be impossible to indict a whole people, but quite possibly to indict and to coerce, when necessary, its leaders. Steps will need to be taken to stop the preaching of the supremacy of the state. Process will have to be assisted by the deletion of the nationalistic material employed in educational textbooks and its replacement by material explaining the benefit of wider association. Men engaged in practical affairs, as well as many theorists, are looking to something in the nature of federal organization, with a common police, a Supreme Court, a legislative and governing body, and common economic agencies for advice and control. An economic and financial organization embracing trade, development, and migration commissions, and a central bank. The function of these institutions would be to regulate production and distribution of raw materials and food, control the flow of interregional investments and migrations, etc. So the Institute of the Pacific Relations is just one of the organizations that Henry Luce was associated with. It should also be noted. Luce was a strong supporter of the United Nations. Even after convicted communist Alger Hiss's role in the establishment of the UN was revealed, Hiss was the first Secretary General of the UN. Luce was also carrying on a relationship with Mary Bancroft while he was married to Claire Booth Luce. It was this man, Henry Luce, with whom Billy Graham had a deep friendship. Of course, Billy Graham has been a supporter of the United Nations for a long time, so perhaps this is why Luce and Graham could be good friends. Who was the eighth person chosen? Let's look at some. Let's look at just one more item of interest concerning Henry Luce. Life magazine enlisted eight distinguished Americans to respond to what Luce called a summons of some urgency on the national purpose. These men were Aldi Stevenson, a council on foreign relations, CFR, member who presided in the United Nations, Archibald MacLeish, a member of the Skull and Order, Skull and Bones Order, as well as the head of UNESCO, which promotes world government, David Starnoff, another CFR member, Walt Lippman, a CFR member, president of the Harvard chapter of the Intercollegiate Socialist Society, a British Fabian social member, an apologist for Fidel Castro, founder and manager of the League for Inter- Industrial Democracy and the Students for a Dem- Democratic Society, who was appointed by Woodrow Rus- Wilson to draw up a charter for world government. Clinton Rosetter, who was appointed to head a team of scholars to study the effects of bringing communism into various aspects of American life. John W. Gardner, a CFR member, and Albert Wuschetetter, a CFR member. Oh, and the eighth person chosen was none other than Billy Graham. Why would Billy Graham be selected to serve along with a number of Council on Foreign Relations members and or communists? David Sarnoff David Sarnoff was just mentioned. Graham is an autobiography tells in his autobiography tells us he accidentally met Sarnoff. Graham writes quote, quote when we were on the ship returning returning us from Japan and Korea in early nineteen fifty three we met a Jewish businessman named Jack Lewis. He invited us to a party he was giving during which a woman preferred a hula dance. When she found out who I was, she apologized, fearing that she had offended me. I told her I had been to Hawaii before and knew that the hula was part of their ancient culture. It turned out she was the wife of the owner of Honolulu's morning newspaper. After our arrival in the islands, she invited me to a dinner party at her home. General David Sarnoff, his wife were there and afterward they offered to take me back to the hotel. On the way the general asked is there anything I can do for you? Yes sir. I could tell he was surprised at my quick answer. I'd like to go on NBC with my radio program. I'll see what I can do he said. Apparently true to his word we soon were on NBC every Sunday evening. Who is Sarnoff? He was born in Russia. He was also a mason. Additionally, Sarnoff was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He was chairman of the Board of Radio Cooperation of America, RCA, and known as the father of American television. The RCA building in New York was the headquarters of M16 Chief British Intelligence Officer Sir William Stevenson, RCA's directorate is composed of British-American establishment figures who figure promptly in organizations such as the CFR, NATO, the Club of Rome, the Trilateral Commission, Freemasonry, Skull and Bones, Bilderbergers, and the Round Table. Other groups represented by RCA's directorate are the Milner Group, CINI Foundation, Mont Pellerman Society and the Jesuits Aristotle Society. Chase Man- Manhattan Bank controls 6.7% of its ABC stock, enough to give it controlling interest. Chase, through its trust department, controls 14% of CBS and 4.5% of RCA. Bernard Barak. We just looked a little bit at Henry Luce, but it was Bernard Barak who introduced Luce to Billy Graham in the first place. A book specially printed by the Billy Graham organizations states this, quote, Graham's address was read at home by the late Bernard Barak, the aging Jewish financier, confidant of Churchill, and former colleague of F.E. Roosevelt. Brock drew it to the attention of Henry R. Luce, his house guest at Yeman's Hall near Georgetown. On the morning of Thursday, March 9th, Billy Graham learned that Luce would stay the night at the executive mansion and would attend the crusade. Graham's own autobiography brags, quote, In the winter of 1950, <clears throat> We held our first major southern crusade in Columbia, South Carolina. Governor Strom Thurmond invited Ruth and me to come and stay in the governor's mansion as his guests. One day while there, we received a call from a Mr. Holland. Holland head of the Atlanta Office of Time and Life, saying that the founding editor and publisher, Henry Luce, wanted to come down and spend two or three days with us. Mr. Luce, it seemed, had received a letter from his friend, senior statesman and financier, Bernard Barack, who was vacationing at Habcaw Barney, his plantation near Charleston. The morning newspaper in Columbia, the state, was carrying my sermons each day, and Mr. Barak had been reading them. He told Mr. Luce that this was something he thought America needed and that he should send some of his people to get acquainted with me. Henry Luce decided to come himself, unquote. Who was Barak? Well, he was the person who convinced Winston Churchill a mason, to join the Illuminati conspiracy. He was also one of many who gave money for the founding of the Council of Foreign Relations in 1921. In fact, quote, the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR, became the American headquarters for the Illuminati, led by Colonel Edward Mandel, House, who wrote the charter. They were financed by Paul Warburg, Jacob Schiff, William Avril Harriman, Frank Vanderlip, Bernard Barak, Nelson Aldridge, J.P. Morgan, Otto Kahn, Albert H. Wiggin, Herbert H. Lehman, and John Rockefeller. Barack was also the confidant of Franklin D. Roosevelt and one of the biggest contributors to Woodrow Wilson's campaign for presidency. Barack was then named by President Wilson to head the War Industries Board, where he controlled all domestic war material contracts. It was widely rumored in Wall Street that out of the war to make the world safe for international bankers, he netted $200 million for himself, wrote Allen. Barak was the United States Representative for the United Nations General Assembly in 1946. He was also involved with the Royal Institute of International Affairs, RIIA. The RIIA branch in America is known as the CFR. On August 7, 1918, Barak said, quote, Every man's life is at the call of the nation, and so must be every man's property. We are living today in a highly organized state of socialism. The state is all. The individual is of importance only as he contributes to the welfare of the state. His property is only as the state does not need it. He must hold his life and his possessions at the call of the state." Barak was involved in the Rothschild bankers, and in 1913 he, along with others, brought in Lev Trowski to New York and paid for the recruiting and training of three hundred Russian Jews who became the leadership in the communist revolution of Russia in 1917. John Foster Dulles. Tells us that Mr. Bernard and Barack had, at times, cordial social relations with Mr. Chromaco, whom, no, when they were working together on the Atomic Commission. Chromaco was a distinct part in the drafting part of this charter with my own hands, unquote. I'm sorry, he kind of got like sidetracked there for a minute. When Cromoco visited the United States, the first man he met with was none other than David Rockefeller. Now, isn't it interesting and amazing that Barack, a man who helped bring communism to Russia and who was involved in bringing in a one-world government, would be interested in Billy Graham? and thought that Graham's message was needed by America? Of course, Barack's friend, Cromaco, also met with Billy Graham. Graham tells us in his autobiography, quote, In recognition of our presence, the Kremlin arranged for us to be received by the longtime foreign minister, Andre Cromaco, William Randall Hurst Another man that needs to be looked at is William Randall Hurst. He was a publisher who had the San Francisco Examiner, Los Angeles Examiner, Boston Sunday Advertiser, New York Morning Journal, New York Evening Journal, Chicago Herald American, Boston American, Chicago Examiner, New York Daily Mirror, New York Journal American, Cosmopolitan, Town and Country, Harper's Bazaar, Good Housekeeping, plus about a dozen or so other magazines. Hearst was the first one who put Billy Graham in the limelight. Graham writes in his autobiography about that event in 1949. He states, When I arrived at the tent for the next meeting, the scene startled me for the first time the place was crawling with reporters and photographers they had taken almost no notice of the meeting up until now and very little had appeared in the papers i asked one of the journalists what was happening you've been kissed by william Randall hurst he responded I had no idea what the reporter was talking about, although I knew the name. Hearst, of course, was the great newspaper owner. I had never met the man, but like most Americans, I had read his papers. The next morning's headline story about the campaign in the Los Angeles Examiner, followed by an evening story in the Los Angeles Herald Express, both owned by Hearst, stunned me. The story was picked up by the Hearst Papers in New York, Chicago, Detroit, and San Francisco, and then by all their competitors. Until then, I doubt if any newspaper editor outside the area had heard of our Los Angeles campaign. Supposedly, he had sent a message to his editors, Puff Graham, unquote. In fact, the night before the rally, an editorial written by Hearst said, Of all great assemblies take place in Los Angeles area this year, none perhaps will be more significant and with more far-reaching effects than the Billy Graham rally in the Pasadena Rose Bowl tomorrow evening. Unquote. How did Hearst know? Was there an orchestrated plan to promote Graham? Not only did Hearst puff Graham in his newspapers, he also financed the first three years of Graham's crusades. Hmm. When Bookstore Journal asked Graham in 1991, <clears throat> "What has been the highlight for your ministry so far?" he responded, quote, "I always think my most recent crusade is the highlight, but there have certainly been high points. One of our meetings in Los Angeles in 1949, we were supposed to be there three weeks, but we stayed for eight or ten. Mr. Hurst." The publisher became interested in the meetings. How? I don't know. Before his involvement, we didn't get any coverage at all in any paper, except for maybe a little note on Sunday at an edition page saying that the meetings were continuing. Then, all of a sudden, we were on the front pages of both of Hearst's local papers every day, and we were in all of his papers across the country. Of course, the other papers have to pay attention then. Time magazine did an article, and I think that was before it had a religious section that was a turning point, unquote. Christians everywhere. Graham continued, "...another significant thing happened in the early fifties in Boston. The pilot, which is the Dyson paper, put Bravo Billy on the front cover. That made news all over the country. He and I became close, wonderful friends. That was my first real coming to grips with the whole Protestant-Catholic situation. I began to realize that there were Christians everywhere." They might be called modernists, Catholics, or whatever, but they were Christians. Jesus taught, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, and that love is more important than anything else. I don't think I've departed from that realization. Hmm. Who was Hearst, and why would he promote Graham? One researcher says this, Hearst had built a newspaper empire, which he used to influence political events in the United States. He used his paper to demand war with Spain, which broke out in 1897, five months later to the assassination of President William McKinley on September 6th, 1901, Randolph Hearst printed an editorial in his newspaper which approved political assassination under extreme circumstances. Unquote. In, addition, in an editorial dated August 28, 1933, William Randall Hearst wrote in a part quote, A politician will do anything to keep his job, even become a patriot. Unquote. Hearst was not only deeply involved in dirty politics and dirty tricks, but in his private life, he lived in adultery for some thirty years by having movie actress Marion Davies as his mit- mistress. He built a fabulous castle on the California coast at San Simeon, where he entered the rich and the famous people, particularly inviting decadent actors and actresses from Hollywood to come and stay as guests and flaunt their sinful way of living. Hearst never repented of his sins to become a Christian, but he became intensely interested in the Youth for Christ movement and began to promote it through his papers. The official reason for his strange behavior of a rich sinful man is given by the Billy Graham Association in the Authorized Biography of Billy Graham by John Pollock, page 35. Quote, Hurst had become interested in Youth for Christ, which flourished exceedingly in his home city of Los Angeles, and promoted it by several editorials in his national chain of newspapers, not for religious reasons, but because it provided moral standards for youth and was an answer to the growing problem of juvenile delinquency. In retrospect, it becomes clear that Hearst was not interested in Youth for Christ as an organization, but his focus was on Billy Graham, who was the shining star of this move of God. On March eighteenth, 1946, Tory Johnson organized a tour to launch Youth for Christ to a war-devastated Europe among the people who went on this trip was billy graham but there were two other men on this trip who would greatly influence graham one was the toronto youth For Christ's director, Charles Templeton, a former newspaper cartoonist, Templeton was an intellectual and had great difficulty in believing that the Bible was the word of God. A few years later, he made an official decision of rejecting the Bible as the infallible word of God. Here is what Billy Graham said of Templeton. He helped me tremendously to broaden my whole vision. The second man was Wesley Hartzell, a journalist on Hearst's Chicago American. He had been assigned by Hearst to travel with the gospel team and write articles dealing with the success of the meetings, which were to be featured by the international news service, reaching into nearly all American cities and large towns. At that time, no one in the Christian community knew that the world government had begun To build an icon that later would be accepted by the large masses of people as a holy man speaking for God. The team stayed in Great Britain three weeks. Hmm. Puff, I think that says YFC. Puff YFC. Billy Graham asserts that he doesn't know why Hearst gave him publicity, since he claims that he and Hearst never met. But earlier in his autobiography, he admitted that Wesley Hartzell, a Hearst- newspaper men, traveled with the Youth for Christ and Graham to Great Britain. A prophet with honor, which Graham asked William Martin to write, says basically the same thing. Listen to her story. He said that Tory Johnson, Graham, and a few others were, quote, accompanied by Wesley Herzl, a reporter for William Randolph Hertz, Chicago Herald American. Herzl was assigned to this trip on an editor's-inspired hunch that Graham might turn out to be a top newsmaker. Hearst had already shown considerable interest in YFC, Youth for Christ, apparently because he liked its patriotic emphasis and felt its high moral standards might help combat juvenile delinquency. Not incidentally, he also figured that any movement attracting nearly a million people to rallies every Saturday night might help him sell newspapers. According to Johnson, who never had any direct contact with Hearst, the reclusive publisher sent his Chicago editor a telegram shortly after the Soldier Field rally. It contained only two words, PUFF YFC youth for christ a short time later all 22 hearst papers carried a full page story on the youth for christ movement further coverage followed and other papers picked up the story as the old titan hearst watched the organization grow he apparently realized that graham and the in templeton were its two brightest stars, and decided to assign someone to chronicle their ascent. Herzl's reports of the British trip appeared not only in the Hertz papers, but on the international news service wire as well, providing potential exposure to virtually every significant newspaper in America. William Martin continues: quote, Accounts of Graham's career have typically portrayed the Hearst endorsement as a complete surprise, unsought and unexpected. The reality was less dramatic. All the Hearst papers had boosted. YFC Hearst had sent his puff YFC telegram in 1946, but none had done more for the organization than the Los Angeles Examiner, the largest West Coast newspaper at the time. Its publisher, R. A. Carrington, though not particularly religious himself, admired the organization gave its activities and good coverage in the newspaper, did much of its printing free of charge, and arranged for the paper to sponsor various YFC projects. Most notably, Carrington had given YFC leader Roy McCohen a weekly column in the Sunday Examiner to report on YFC activity for a five-state region. A committee member for the revival... McCohen contacted Carrington to ask if the paper might give Graham and the meeting special attention. Carrington met with Graham, then telephoned the chief, Hearst, and the rest was publicity. The next morning, the examiner and the city's other Hearst paper, the Herald, gave him banner headlines, and twelve other papers in the Hearst chain also gave the campaign extensive coverage. Within days, the Associated Press, the United Press, and the International News Service picked up the story, and Time, Newsweek, and Life followed soon afterward with major feature stories, Several of those in leadership at Hearst Publications were masons, such as Frank F. Barham, Vice President and Director of Hearst Publishing Company, Harry O. Davis, William DeBeck, William Franklin Knox, General Manager, Merrill C. Meigs, Vice President and later President of Hearst Corpor- Corporation in Chicago, Frank J. Nicht, Director, and Fred A. Walker. AIDS Prayer The William Randolph Hearst Foundation, in 1984, gave $10,000 to Planned Parenthood which encourages abortion. Also funded in part by the Hearst uh, Corporation was a Pulitzer Prize-winning play called Angels in America, a gay fantasia of national themes, which was held at St. John the Divine Cathedral about 1994. This play contained an AIDS prayer, which says in part, um, quote, Let us pray. God, a cure would be nice. Enlighten the unenlightened, the pope, the cardinals, archbishops, priests, even John Cardinal O'Connor. Teach him how Christ's kindness worked. Remind him he's forgotten. Make them all remember. Replace the ice water in their veins with the blood of Christ. Let it pound in their temples. Your silence, I must tell you, is so stead- steadfastly maintained even in the face of our appalling need is outrageous. So many have died this year alone. In case you were absent, God or absent minded, where, God, are you? So a cure for AIDS, for racism too, for homophobia and sexism, and an end to war, to nationalism and capitalism, to work as such and to be. And to hatred of the flesh. Don't expect that we will forgive you if we allow if you allow us to be endangered. Be thou more sheltering God. Pay more attention. Unquote. That makes me really mad. I'm sorry, but it does. Okay. A few other sponsors of this blasphemous play were Chase Manhattan Bank controlled by the Rockefellers, Donald Trump, Prudential Insurance Company, Colgate-Palmolive Company, Philip Morris Companies, Robert D. Rothschild, David Rockefeller, Mary C. Rockefeller, Mr. and Mrs. Lawrence Spellman Rockefeller, Mr. and Mrs. Lawrence Rockefeller, Rockefeller Center Properties, Inc., Rockefeller Group, Inc., Mr. and Mrs. Stephen C. Rockefeller. Stephen Rockefeller just presented the Earth Turner for approval at the Millennium World Peace Summit in late August 2000. He said that the biosphere is in us and we are in the biosphere. Hearst is also into book publishing now and has published so-called Christian occultic, pro-gay occultic, whole gay, pro-gay occultic and satanic books. One of these books was The Relaxation Response by Herbert Benson, which promoted the occultic technique of yoga, although under a different name. The publisher, William Morrow, was purchased by the Hearst Corporation a number of years ago. About five years ago, William Moreau published a book by Peter Gomes, who is a homosexual. Prior to this, they printed Ruth Montgomery's book of, on Jean Dixon, an astrologer, as well as the book of Predictions and the Eye of Shiva. Oh, and another book published by William Moreau was a prophet with honor. The Billy Graham Story, a book which is very favorable to Graham, and which he asks to be written. Hmm. What is amazing is that Hearst would take an interest in someone like Billy Graham in the first place. As was already mentioned, Hearst was not a Christian and was living in adultery, yet he was drawn to Graham. William Randolph Hearst Jr. was even instrumental in helping out Graham's 1957 crusade in Madison Square Garden. A prophet with honor states, quote, "Seldom, if ever, has a crusade been able to boost." That boost, boast. Boast of more competent and influential leadership. The Crusade Committee, chaired by Roger Hall, Vice President of Mutual of New York, included in its number Chase Manhattan, George Champion, Norman Vincent Peale, longtime Graham Backers, Russell McGuire, and J. Howard Pugh, Corporate Executives Walter Hoving, Eddie Rickenbacker, Jeremiah Milbank, Reader Digest Senior Editor Stanley High, and Media Moguls Henry Luce, William Randolph Hearst, Jr., Harold Tribune, Editor Ogden Reed, and ABC President Robert Kittner. With this kind of clout at the top, and with solid encouragement from members of the Dodge, Phelps, Vanderbilt, Gould, and Whitney families, Finance Chairman... Howard Isham, vice president and treasurer of U.S. Steel, found it relatively easy to raise a large portion of the projected $600,000 budget. The liberal press has helped Graham in more ways than one. One author reveals, quote, Apparently, Billy Graham has a special tie-in with liberal media as well since they covered up a report that his nephew, Kevin Graham Ford, pleaded guilty for exposing himself to two teenage girls. There was also a story about a $23 million slush fund scandal, see Chapter 7 for more about this, which briefly threatened the Graham Empire. Wow but that also suddenly disappeared from mention in the national media." The World Book Year Book the World Book Yearbook, mentioned that Graham drew criticism from some of his supporters for having concealed the existence of a $23 million educational fund. This book adds there were also charges in the publishing world that Graham's best-selling How to be Born Again reproduced without acknowledging without acknowledging it, a great portion of one of his earlier books issued by a different publisher. It sure has paid Graham to have friends in high places. Brooks Hayes Another individual in high places was Brooks Hayes. Hayes was a congressman from Arkansas, a Mason, and an assistant to the late President Kennedy. He was also on Council on Foreign Relations member. Imagine that. Additionally, he was one of the people who sponsored an ungodly temple of understanding, which will be covered later. Hayes states... I must say at the onset that I did not accept all of the Bible as literal true. The literal inerrancy position of inspiration is DWC, anti-biblical, for it tends to make an idol of printed pages. It is DWC, bibliolatry, as dangerous as any other form of idolatry. Wow, unquote. What does Graham think of Hayes? He writes in his autobiography, I called my old Christian friend, Congressman Brooke Hayes, from Arkansas, and asked his advice. Sadly, Hayes' statement about the Bible sounds a little bit like what Billy Graham told the Saturday Evening Post in April 1963. I am not a literalist. If you try to accept the literal meaning of every word in the Bible, you will get in all sorts of trouble. Hmm. Unfortunately, Graham will get into far more trouble on Judgment Day by not believing the Bible. Presidents and Royalty Just briefly, let's look at some of Graham's friendships with leaders around the world. The following quotations are taken from Graham's autobiography, Just As I Am. During the eight years of Reagan's administration, we saw each other a number of times. I especially appreciated his kindness in inviting Ruth and me to several state dinners for visiting foreign leaders. In November of 1985, he invited us again to a state dinner, this time in honor of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. In December 1987, the Soviet Union's General Secretary, Mikhail Gorbachev, and his wife, Reza, visited Washington for a summit conference. We were invited to some of the festivities. During the welcoming ceremony on the White House lawn, Ruth and I were standing next to Henry Kissinger. In November 1988, President Reagan's last official guest for a state dinner was Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher of England. In 1981, she had been his first such guest He had invited us, and he invited us again. We first met George and Barbara Bush some years earlier before he became prominent in national politics. I had met his father, Senator Prescott Bush, several times during my visits to Washington. I got to know him better after his retirement from the Senate as a golfing partner at Hobby Sound, Florida. Also got acquainted with his wife, Dorothy Bush, a delightful and devout woman who was very supportive of our work across the years. Wow. The second White House state dinner during the Bush years was in honor of the Gorbachev's in 1990. He was seated next to Reza Gorbachev with President Bush at her other side. I became good friends with R. Sergeant Shriver, head of the Peace Corps, and later we made a documentary film together on the problem of poverty in the Appalachian Mountains. One day he offered to pick me up in Montreat. He showed up with a helicopter and landed in front in our front yard. Nixon came to Charlotte on October fifteenth 1971, honoring me by attending Billy Graham Day there, an event sponsored by the city. He and I stood in an open convertible that moved slowly through town. One day, Ruth and I attended a Father's Day luncheon at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, where I was honored as Father of the Year in the field of religion. I had the opportunity to meet Mickey Mantle, the great baseball player, I sat down beside him, and we got to know each other for the first time. I enjoyed meeting oh, let's see, General Izumo and Madame Chaing Kayashik in Tapiai Formosa and Prime Minister Hadimawa in Tokyo, where he postponed his appearance at a session of parliament for a half hour in order to accommodate me. We were invited to several events in Washington. On one occasion, at one of the dinners during Ford's presidency, I sat beside Grace Kelly, Princess Grace of Monaco. From 1955 to 1960, I met with several dozen heads of state, from the Prime Minister of Japan to the Prime Minister of Israel. In fact, in connection with our international ministry, I have continued to meet a wide spectrum of leaders over the years, including virtually every Prime Minister of Japan and Chancellor of Germany. Since so much of our ministry has been spent in Great Britain, we have made more opportunities to meet a wide spectrum of people in leadership positions there, including almost all of the Prime Ministers since 1954. On March 3, 1983, we were privileged to accept an invitation to such a dinner in San Francisco. guest guests of honor were Britons, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. During the evening, someone was sent to invite us on behalf of the queen to a reception the next night on board the royal yacht Britannia. We accepted. It may sound oppressive to say that we have been with Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth the Second on a dozen different occasions, but those twelve occasions have been spread over forty years. On one occasion, when I was in Great Britain, queen was preparing her annual Christmas address to be broadcast on television around the world. To illustrate a point, she wanted to toss a stone into a pond to show the ripples went out farther and farther. She asked me to come and listen to her practice the speech by the pond and give my impressions, which I did. I also had the privilege of meeting Prime Minister Nehru. This assisted us in other ways, because once you have been received by the head of state in a country like India, mayors and governors are more likely to welcome you to their area. At Nixon's second inauguration in 1973, Bill Marriott, a Mormon, founder and head of the Marriott Hotel and restaurant chain, was chair of the Gala Affair, as he had been in 1969 had become one of my closest friends and had appointed me honorary chair of the inauguration symphony concert at the kennedy center for that event ruth and i dressed up in our best we arrived early for a small pre-concert reception and sat with the agnews and the charlton hestons for a while Incidentally, Marriott Hotels are America's biggest seller of alcoholic beverages. Also, Marriott Hotels will continue selling porno movies because the money is good. Knowing of Ruth's deep interest in China, President Reagan invited us in July of 1985 to a state dinner honoring the Chinese president, Li uh, Zanian. The President thoughtfully seated Ruth on his left at the dinner, with President Lee on his right. I have no doubt this helped us when we began negotiations for our trip to China three years later. One trip to India in 1972 deserves more than passing mention for several reasons. President Nixon, at the request of the American Council in New Delhi, had personally asked me to seek an interview with Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, in part to find out from her what kind of ambassador she wanted from America. He asked me to notice every single thing about her, the movement of her hands, the expression on her face, how her eyes looked. When you finished the interview, he said to me, go to the American embassy and dictate your report to me. And so when I visited with Mrs. Gandhi in the Indian capital, I put the question to her. She told me she wanted someone who understood economics, who had the ear of the president, and who had influence in Congress. This I reported to the president. He later appointed Daniel Patrick Molahine. Whether my report influenced the president's decision, I never learned. Later during a visit to Washington, I heard a late night knock on my hotel room door. It was Daniel Patrick Manahine. I want to thank you for appointing me ambassador to India, he said. I didn't have you appointed, I protested. I just passed on Mr. Nixon, a message from Mrs. Gandhi. I'm sure you had me appointed, Mahane insisted. I'm a Catholic, he went on. Shortly before leaving the United States for India, and just half a year after that meeting with Jack, Dane, I was able to meet with the Secretary of State, Don Foster Dulles, a briefing on relations between the United States and India, he felt that it was especially important for me to know that the visit to India of Soviet leaders Khrushchevkov and Belgen two months earlier had, had its sole purpose drawing India into closer ties with the communistic bloc. On my return to the United States, I I went through Washington and brought President Eisenhower and Vice President Nixon up to date on the details of my visit to India. I want you to talk to Dolis about it, said the President. Dolly's kept me a long time because he wanted to hear every detail of our visit to Asia, as well as my impressions of India and Nehru. He also wanted to talk with me on personal matter. Another source reports, Johnson invited me invited him, Graham, to the White House twenty-three times, five of those for overnight. The truth was that Billy Graham knew more of the inner workings of Johnson's White House than Nixon. The above is just a small sampling of those with whom Graham has rubbed shoulders. In fact, he bragged, over the years I have met so many of the rich and famous in many countries that it's impossible to mention or even remember them all. I have crossed paths with a wide spectrum of leaders from all kinds of fields, politicals, politics, religion, business, education, entertainment, sports. Richard Nixon once told an interviewer that I knew more international leaders than he did. Well, I think I'm going to end that for now because, oh, well, I'm only at 53 minutes. Why not go an hour? So let me just continue, I guess. Graham wonders if he's pleasing God or man. Graham said that he was reluctant to talk about all the famous people he had met, but the reluctance certainly didn't stop him from spending a good amount of the over 700 pages referring to such acquaintances in his autobiography. It also didn't stop him from flaunting picture after picture of himself meeting with various presidents and royalty. He also pays a lot of attention to the public opinion poll. In fact, one of Graham's biographers noted that Graham admitted that he may pay more attention to public opinion polls than he ought to. Said Graham, I wonder sometimes if I'm pleasing God or man. Lyndon Johnson once acknowledged that he often contacted Graham get a new injection of confidence and optimism, recalling that during one particularly difficult period, when I was being called a crook and a thug and all, he invited Graham to spend a weekend with him, and we bragged on each other. I told him he was the greatest religious leader in the world, and he said I was the greatest political leader. I've heard it stated that it's wonderful that Graham can be around all these world leaders and witness to them about Jesus. It certainly would be wonderful if. That's what he was doing. I think it's obvious that he isn't really witnessing for Jesus. When he is asked to take messages from world leader to world leader and give reports of his overseas visits to presidents, he is acting in the realm of politics, not religion. Graham denies being involved in politics, but anyone who reads his autobiography can see that he is heavily involved in the political arena. As mentioned in this chapter, it was through Graham and that Reagan appointed an ambassador to the Vatican. Molinari thanks Graham for influencing Nixon to appoint him as ambassador to India. Nixon asked for Graham's advice in selecting a running mate. Below is another quote to show you Graham's influence in the political realm. Quote, One morning, Billy got a phone call from the White House President. Eisenhower had been consulting him for some time on racial matters. Ike respected moral authority based on the Bible, and Billy knew the Bible. But this time, Ike sought more. He wanted to know more, he wanted to know a moral white southerner thought of the situation in Little Rock. Ike was feeling Billy out about sending troops to Little Rock. Do it, Mr. President within an hour vice-president nixon called billy to ask the same question who had answered billy that afternoon the hundred and first airborne division entered little rock central high school was desegregated des- it's true that graham also functioned in the role of the nation's pastor. In 1968, Billy Graham gave the benediction at both the Democratic and Republican conventions in Chicago and Miami, as well as in 1988. In March 1969, Billy was called to Walter Reed Hospital in Washington, D.C. Ike Eisenhower was in bed, ghostly white, with nothing left but a trace of the famous grin. He had been there for almost a year, dying. He asked for Billy. When Reagan was shot, the White House sent out an emergency call for Graham, and the evangelists came immediately to the Capitol to comfort and pray with Mrs. Reagan. When the Oklahoma City bombing took place, Clinton called on Graham for the memorial service. When the disaster occurred at the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center, a National Day of Prayer was called, and Graham was the speaker for the interfaith service, which included a rabbi and a Muslim imam. On this occasion, one clergyman offered a prayer which began with, God of Abraham, Mohammed, and Jesus Christ. When George Bush Senior decided on the Persian Gulf War, he sent a message to Graham which read, Come, we need you. He also had Graham preach the sermon. This sermon, however, was quite interesting. Graham said, Perhaps out of this war will come a new peace, and as stated by the president, a new world order. Of course, students of Bible prophecy know that the Antichrist will be the ruler of this new world order. Could Graham's endorsement and acceptance of the new world order be why he was able to meet with heads of state over the past 50 or so years? Yes, it would be wonderful if Graham would take the message of Jesus Christ to these leaders, but he isn't doing it. How could Graham witness the presidents, etc., when he already believes that people such as Richard Dixon, Lyndon Johnson, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Mother Teresa, John Kennedy Jr., Elvis Presley, etc., were Christians, some of these people will be covered more thoroughly later on? How could Graham preach the new true gospel of Christ to these people? Nothing the new... I'm sorry, how could Billy Graham preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ to these people and tell them to repent when he doesn't believe the Jews need Jesus and pagans can be saved through nature? How can Graham present a salvation message to those leadership when he himself disobeys the Bible by having fellowship with apostate and unbelievers, which will be documented in the next several chapters? The Bible says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness rather reprove them. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 11. I'm sorry to disappoint those who thought Graham was taking the message of salvation to those in leadership, but it just isn't so. Oh, he may mention words like God, Christ, or even Jesus from time to time, but that isn't sharing the gospel. Witches and occultists also mention those words. It takes more than just mouthing some Christian words. Remember the Bible says not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Matthew seven, verse twenty one. Jesus said, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Matthew fifteen eight. Besides where are the changed lives of those in leadership if Graham is taking the message of Christ to them? The Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then They should have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 22. Yet many leaders continued to lie, steal, commit adultery, swear, and live the same sinful life as before they met Graham yes graham would be in a wonderful position to reach some leaders for christ but remember if he would point out their sin to them he wouldn't be in that position very long graham himself admitted that if he would bring up issues of homosexuality or abortion to clinton graham would not be invited back to the white house if graham called out called out about the filth of Hollywood do you think he would have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame see chapter 7 for more about this I am going to end that there brothers and sisters I, I really I'm left a little bit speechless on all this but you know my opinion means nothing and I'm going to leave my opinion out I love each and every one of you Keep your eyes on Jesus, brothers and sisters. Keep your nose in the book, which is the word of God, and embed the word of God upon the tablets of your hearts, so you will not sin against God. Brothers and sisters, I can't urge you enough. Go to the Father in prayer. Seek his face. Ask him for discernment. Ask him. For you not to be deceived. Seek him. Seek wisdom. Seek him. Know him. Know his word. Rightly divide the word of truth. Know it. Believe it. Do it. Head knowledge means nothing. We've got to walk in what we read. We've got to believe it. You know, for without faith, it is impossible to please God. Never forget that. I love you all so very, very much. You have a blessed evening. Bye-bye.